Everybody. Hello, hello. I'm glad to see you all this morning. I was told to speak up, so we're going to be loud so that everybody can hear. How's that? Good? Okay. Glad to be with you all this morning. We are continuing with the plagues in Exodus, and we've got the next three plagues, seven, eight, and nine today, and we're basically teeing ourselves up for the big one that ends the entire plague narrative. And so today we're going to be looking primarily at chapters 9 and 10, and then we'll shift over to 11 and get into that 10th and final bad plague next week. So before we get started, just again a bit of housekeeping for those of you who may be joining us for the first time. If you go to stmichael.org slash rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, you can get access to all of the studies we've done over the last four plus years. And if you search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you listen to your podcasts, then you can listen to all of those lessons. They've all been loaded all the way back to Luke and Acts. And so it's something that would be great when you're driving or you're walking or you're having insomnia, whatever, right? I mean, it's a gift from me to you. And so today we'll have a prayer and we will get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. Thanks for the gift of rain that waters the earth and helps refresh our souls. As we begin this study, help us to open ourselves up to your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, that we can be transformed. As we grow closer to you and learn more and more about the ways that you have worked in the world, may we become part of that story so that we, we can be part of the work that you do not only today, but in the future to help extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, well, let's, let's actually just jump right on in. If you will turn to chapter 9, we'll begin with verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that hail may fall on the whole land of Egypt, on humans and animals, and all the plants of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire came down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. There was hail with fire flashing continually in the midst of it. Such heavy hail as had never fallen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the open field throughout all the land of Egypt, both human and animal. The hail also struck down all the plants of the field and shattered every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And then stuff about plants. Verse 33. So Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city, and stretched out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and hardened his heart. 
he said to his officials, so that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. We'll pause there. This thunder and hail plague is devastating to the crops in Egypt. I did skip over the little plant bit, but the point here of this plague is that not only is it scary, thunder, hail, fire, pretty fierce, but it's also destroying stuff. If you think about the crops in the field, with hail for days, including fire, those crops really are damaged to the point that Egypt would not be able to feed its people. If we think back to the story of Egypt, Egypt became strong in the Ark of the Bible. Egypt became strong because Joseph showed up and helped them prepare for the famine. And so by preparing for the famine, Egypt was able to continue to feed its people. Not only could Egypt feed its people, but Egypt could actually sell all of its excess and surplus grain to all of the nations around Egypt who had not saved up enough in order to survive the famine. Egypt really is placed very well. We've discussed in here before that water is critically important to the life of the ancient world. I mean, to be honest, we know water is critically important to us. We are hearing stories almost daily about the way in which water is being rationed and maintained and potentially taxed out west because it's becoming so scarce. Place yourself around the Middle East and in North Africa, and if you have water, you've got huge potential. So Egypt already had huge potential because the Nile was such a gift. But not only do they have water, they used it well to save all that grain so that when there was a massive famine, and in the Bible it says seven years, other nations had to come to Egypt and essentially give Egypt anything they asked for in order to get grain. What good is gold and jewels and armor and other metals if you die of starvation? And so Egypt in the narrative of the Bible, became very strong because it was wise in its use of its food supply. All of that is to say that when we see this about the hail and the fire, the Bible notes very clearly that it crippled Egypt's food production. That might seem, you know, sort of insubstantive to us, but in the arc of the story and who Egypt was, a crippling of the food production is actually a crippling of Egypt's identity and the way in which it used its power and wealth in the world of the Mediterranean at that time. And so that's just sort of a primary note. And before we get into the actual plague itself, I got an interesting question, series of questions really, last week that I think are good for us, enlightening for us to consider as we look at these plagues forward. This, there was a comment about wondering if the Old Testament was really a way of articulating natural phenomena from a group of people who were not kind of scientifically trained or aware. You know, this is not modern scientific method here. And when extraordinary things happened, were those extraordinary things essentially explained away in a kind of mythic sense. God was doing these things rather than understanding perhaps natural ways in which things fall apart. But the questions that I received around this I thought were very interesting. 
Are we applying a theological framework to a simple story intended for simple people? I thought that was a very interesting question. And are we raising, nah, let me skip that one. Are we just telling the story? Were they just telling the story or were they crafty enough to have written something with a much deeper meaning? I.e., were they divinely inspired or just simply writing down the oral tradition that they had received? So I find all of that very creative. So I want to kind of turn that a bit for a few minutes. The first is, are we applying a theological framework to what is actually a very simple story? It is a simple story told by a people who certainly did not have the kind of scientific knowledge we have today, but to think that they were not knowledgeable about science in a fundamental sense is wrong. These were intelligent people. If we think back to the exile, this is not just Joe Farmer deciding to write down a story. First off, most people were illiterate anyway. And so the people who were able to write were already some of the most well-educated people in the entire society. They would have been the priests, the scribes, maybe the lawyers of that community. And so you're talking about the intellectuals of the entire Jewish nation. So to imagine that they were writing a story that is their own story, their identity story, in a way that was not meant to be understood in multiple layers, I, don't, I do not think that is giving them enough credit. And so I do think that the Jewish authors who are writing the story are writing with a very particular theological lens. In addition, were they crafty enough to actually be applying those layers of meaning? And I would say yes, very much. As this story is told, we see some important shifts from plague to plague. We're going to see one today as we shift into plagues eight and nine, I'm sorry, seven and eight, where Pharaoh is beginning to almost break down a little bit in some of the language that he uses. If the storytellers were more simplistic, Pharaoh would have essentially said the same thing after each plague until finally the 10th one and then he shifts. That's not what we see. We see a slow breakdown of Pharaoh's resolve each time a plague hits. I find that very telling about the way in which the Jewish people understood human, the human condition. Most of us can, if we are well-rested and in our right minds and very kind of stable and healthy, resist all kinds of hardship. We can also, if exhausted and tapped out, experience a very minor hardship and completely fall apart, right? I mean, how many of us have in hindsight overreacted to a very simple, hard moment only because we were tired or we were exhausted, right? There's a reason we call it like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? It's, it's a small thing. But man, if it's like the 12th thing that happened that day, you could completely blow up and fly off the handle. I can, for sure. I think what we see with Pharaoh is a slow exhaustion to these plagues. And as Pharaoh becomes exhausted to these plagues, it has nothing to do with the actual plague itself. Rather, it has to do with Pharaoh being worn down. The way this story is told, Remember, this is God versus God. What the writer of Exodus really wants to communicate is 
you may believe that there are gods that are powerful working in the earth, but no one is God over Yahweh. Yahweh really is the best, the strongest, maybe even the only. I think that's attributing it a little too much to the way that this would have been written at the time. But regardless, I do think there is a sense that we see Pharaoh as God incarnate, slowly being broken down so that what the Jewish people are really claiming is Pharaoh's claim of divinity is incorrect. Our claim of the divinity of Yahweh is correct. And I think I'll just pause there. That's probably enough. Any thoughts or questions to clarify some of those ideas? And as you all might think of it, I want to remind the people watching online and all these different platforms that if you've got a chat component, we would love to see your thoughts, comments, or questions right now so we can answer those live. Any feedback or thoughts? My regular question askers aren't here today. Did you have something? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. Come on. What do you think? <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> yes. Ah, thank you. Okay. So the question is, what, what do I mean by Pharaoh is God incarnate? The idea that a leader of a nation is elevated to be superhuman was very common in the ancient world. So we see this all over, in, in all parts of the world. So whether you're talking about tribal systems in West Africa, whether you're talking about um, advanced societies, say in China, or the Indian subcontinent, or of course in the Mediterranean, the Middle East and North Africa, when leaders express their authority, they often express their authority as being better than just human. And in some of those societies, that sense of being better than everyone else evolves over time to become a divine identity. The pharaohs at the time that Moses would have been there, that Middle Kingdom period essentially, they had evolved a theology in which as Pharaoh, they are God's emissary. They are God incarnate on the earth. Sometimes that's told or expressed as being the son of God, but not always. Sometimes those kings or queens expressed it as being God's physical presence on earth. And so you get this incarnate divinity that predates Jesus by centuries and centuries, if not millennia. So it's important for us to know that that's the case because early Christians were real people living in the real world. And for them, as they exercised and tried to work out who Jesus was, much of the way in which the world articulated authority and power became part of the way in which they told the story of Jesus. And that is not meant to imply any sort of untruth, but it is a way we have to acknowledge that the way in which even down to Caesar was articulated in the Roman Empire impacted the way in which early Christians understood Jesus. Is that, is that kind of helpful? 
kind of. Um, I mean, I guess the, the very summary of this is great leaders were thought to be God on earth before Jesus was ever around. That, that just, and it's, you can tweak it a little bit based on different contexts and cultural um, relevancies, but that was pretty common. So is there a question there, or are you... So a quick summary for those of you online. It seems as if, so your comment is that you never really subscribed to Jesus's divinity and that it almost seems as if it was a helpful but untrue way of understanding him in the early church that's kind of stuck. Is that a fair characterization? The definition of divinity. Um, okay, let me see. So, first off, I can say you would have certainly been burned at the stake um, back in Christian history. <laughs> um, so, I, <laughs> I mean, joking aside, that that is your articulation, your questioning of Jesus's divinity in the way that. Christian theology has traditionally interpreted divinity is absolutely in keeping with many early Christian groups that said Jesus was great and a good teacher and a great philosopher and a representative of God, a reflection of God, all of those things. But actually God on earth? Well, no, we don't have to go that far because it's unnecessary. There were multiple different groups throughout the first centuries of Christianity that really argued that point. And I would say they did so very faithfully. They were not trying to undermine Jesus in any way. They, in a sense, they were trying to elevate what was, what they felt like was the real gift of Jesus and not make Jesus some kind of um, magician or some kind of mysterious whatever. And ultimately the church said, no, they were wrong. And so if you're talking about Orthodox Christianity, 
Orthodox Christianity definitely says that Jesus was fully divine. And now, do I think in the end that Jesus cares whether we think that's true or not? I do not think so. Um, I mean, I think if there was anything that we know about Jesus, Jesus was far more concerned about our faithfulness to God than what we thought of him. One could argue that Jesus as a fully incarnate divine God on earth then isn't separate from God anyway. And so what I even just said a moment ago doesn't actually make sense. But now we're getting into Trinitarian theology and there's a reason you always put the junior clergy person on to preach on Trinity Sunday. Um, is because it doesn't make sense. It will not make sense. We can talk all the way around it, but it will still be very unsatisfying. Um, ultimately, the Trinity, which necessitated Jesus' divinity, was established as a way of understanding the completeness of God the best we can. And so when we talk about Jesus' divinity in the same way we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's simply a way for us to try and wrap our minds around God that we will never fully understand. And so for us to anchor ourselves and root ourselves into some super rigid understanding of each person of the Trinity, A, will always fall short and be in a sense does not faithfully acknowledge God's unknowable nature. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I for one would, I do think that God was present in Jesus, that Jesus was divine. I don't try and over explain that because I think with every breath of explanation around that, you mess it up more and more and more. That part of what we do is live into a mystery and say, that thing is true in some way I cannot explain and it doesn't even matter. And so I would invite you to either be just fine not understanding something that is mysterious or be fine not needing to think that that's true. I remember I had a teacher once tell me, you can believe or not believe or challenge whatever you want about God's reality and God can handle it. So part of being an Episcopalian, I think, is being able to kind of find yourself anywhere along the journey and know God's got you anyway. I mean, none of us are right enough to where now we earn God's love and grace. So wherever you are, be there and just keep working at it. Repeat what I said about Orthodox Christian. <clears throat> it's always dangerous when you ask me to repeat something I said because I don't remember. Um, are you asking me what being an Orthodox Christian kind of means? Well, you were discussing the fact of the early church and how they viewed after you said that, like, yes. 
Yes. I should have said orthodox with a lowercase o. So I am not talking about Eastern Orthodox Christianity. I'm talking about orthodox in the sense of the right belief of Christianity. Now, that's already problematic. Before I even say anything else, there is a problem with me even saying that because there are certainly Christians, and, and by that I mean people who choose to follow Jesus, who would not subscribe to whatever I am about to say about little o orthodox Christianity. So when I say a an orthodox Christian position, hear me as saying what has been consistently true about most followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years. That is what I mean by an, a, an orthodox position, Christian position. There are plenty of groups that do things that are outside of that that I would say are trying their best. I mean, a great example in America is many Christian, many mainline Christian traditions would take issue with Mormons calling themselves Christian. But they certainly do. Of course they do. Now they've got a particularly, I would say, interesting story um, that requires Jesus to have sailed with Jews from Israel to America and buried stuff in New York, which I don't know. I mean, I guess if I guess if we're gonna say Jesus rose from the dead, why couldn't he sail to America on a canoe? I don't know. Um, so who am I to say Jesus couldn't do that? That seems a bit um, interesting. That I'll stop there. Um, but I do think that they fall outside what would be classic Orthodox Christianity. But they absolutely are trying to faithfully follow Jesus as put forward in the Bible. And so, I mean, it, it is a particular branch. So Orthodox Christian belief is really based on what we see in the Nicene Creed. And that's the easiest way for me to say this. <clears throat> I think I've said this in the past, but just to kind of put some historical context there, Christianity was catch-as-catch-can for a few hundred years. After Jesus was gone, his disciples became apostles, which simply means the students became teachers. And they began to teach other people, and then those people began to teach other people, and they would plant little churches all over the place. And those were effectively little community churches, house churches. And they did the best they could. Well, for a few hundred years, that was really all it was. When Rome got involved, Rome wanted standardization. And so they begin, began to say, what do we think of this idea and this idea and this idea? And they wanted to nail it to the ground. And so what I said to Rosamond is there were plenty of very good Christian followers of Jesus that did not believe what was ultimately decided through these Roman councils. Rome decided they were wrong. With a generous heart, I understand they were trying their best. But because Rome wanted standardization, we got ultimately what we see in the Nicene Creed. And then there are plenty of other things that happened in those early conferences. But if you look at the creed, what we say is God is in three persons, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the way they relate to each other is, and you can just read the creed straight through, that's it. And I would say it is easy to articulate a, an orthodox position by saying it's the creed. There are ramifications of that and little tweaks here and there, but in a sense, so long as you subscribe to the Nicene Creed, that is what most Christians have done for most of the last 2,000 years. Does that help? Yeah. It's sort of like saying, you know, we are little c Catholic Christians because we are connected to other churches all over the world versus capital C Roman Catholic Christians. We are not that, but we are still Catholic little c in the same way that we are Orthodox Christians with a little o, not capital O Orthodox. Okay. I did not understand that. What what made the land of Goshen special? God appointed that land. Oh, what made the land of Goshen special? That's simply where the Israelites lived. And so, in a sense, you had the nice part of town and the bad part of town. And so, all of the servants and the slaves lived in the bad part of town. And that was Goshen. So, they did not... The servants, the Israelites, as they were serving Egypt did not live kind of in the in the pool house out back. Yeah. Um, they lived completely far removed from the Egyptians because Egyptians didn't want to see them. Not only that, that, you know, it's interesting. We often use the phrase servants or slaves to describe the Israelites in Egypt. And that might equate to housekeepers or cooks or something like that. They were not. The Israelites were not where the Egyptians were. They did not serve the Egyptians in that kind of capacity. Egyptian culture was like any other culture where there was an economic hierarchy. And so Egyptians cleaned the homes of Egyptians. And Egyptians cooked the food of Egyptian leaders. And so Pharaoh's court was maintained and supported and all by Egyptian people. The Israelites were way away building stuff. So they were the builders who built the big cities for the pharaohs. So they were so physically far removed from the Egyptians that when the hail landed in Egypt, it just didn't land in Goshen. How far away is Goshen? I actually don't remember off the top of my head, but far enough away to where if a flood happened here or a storm happened here or the locusts hit there or the frogs hit there, conceivably, were they far enough away to where that just wouldn't have happened to them? Sure. The way the story is told here, that separation was intentional. God did it here, not there. If you wanted to apply some kind of natural phenomena as the impetus behind the story, that even still could work because just because it rains in Dallas doesn't mean that it rains in Fort Worth. You know, so I think that that's understandable in at least one one sense. Any other thoughts or questions? That's good. I love that stuff. Okay, let's talk about what we see right here 
in this seventh plague. For the first time, Pharaoh almost seems defeated. If we look at verse 27 and 8, verses 27 and 8, Pharaoh says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, enough of the thunder and the hail, I will let you go. You need to stay no longer. So we see a surprising confession. Not only does Pharaoh get to the point where he says, fine, go. But he actually says, I have sinned. God is right and I am wrong. Whoa. This is a real shift. And this kind of confession is structured in a very particular way. And so what I want us to note is that this confession is structured just like Jewish confessions. And so it is not an accident that Pharaoh actually says it this way. This is the ancient traditional way in which a Jewish person would actually confess to God. There is an acknowledgement in that confession that God is right and good and that we as people are wrong and that we have sinned. What is interesting about that is that Jewish confessions are, actually it's funny, when we're looking at this commentary, if you're reading along in the commentary, he says it's a confession that is not emotional or dramatic. And I thought, in other words, it's much more of like an Episcopal confession, right? Because when we do our confessions on Sunday mornings, we are not emotional and dramatic. We are not flogging ourselves or throwing ashes on our heads or anything like that. We are, we are quite proper, right? Um, we, we kneel properly and we speak properly and we've got that good Englishness about us where we say, yes, that is correct. Our manifold sins and wickedness, yes. Um, and we have done and not done certain things and it's very nice and tight and controlled. And that's very much how a Jewish confession works as well. There is not a lot of the lamenting in the drama. It's a much more clean-cut, rational statement. You look at something that has happened, and you say, you know what? I was wrong. And the confession and then return forgiveness is quite clean. Pharaoh here articulates that confession in a super Jewish way. And so for a close reader, I hope we have already connected the dots that the reason Pharaoh would have confessed in that way is because the Jewish authors of this story have already figured out what it actually means to confess in a Jewish way because they're already Jews. The Israelites at this point are not Jewish yet. They will be Jewish for a while. Judaism is anchored in the reception of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. They haven't even gotten to Sinai yet. And so for a Jewish, for a Jewish-style confession to come out of Pharaoh's lips absolutely means that the story has been filtered through a very faithful Jewish mind and is being told in that very faithful Jewish way. Why that is also interesting is that Pharaoh, in a sense, begins to represent our shared humanity more and more. Pharaoh is egotistical 
and pig-headed. Okay, that sounds human to me. <clears throat> Not only is Pharaoh egotistical and pig-headed like all of us in our own special ways, but when Pharaoh is kind of broken by a really bad experience or a really bad mistake, Pharaoh is also confessing their sin or his sin in the same way we are meant to confess our sin to God. And it's a very interesting moment. Now, obviously, we know that even though Pharaoh says, fine, go, he decides against it when his heart is hardened again, when his resolve is hardened again. And so we've got to go on, of course, to the eighth plague. And so as we, and it's interesting too, at the end of that seventh plague, we see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he sinned once more. We're beginning to see that Pharaoh's choice to keep the Israelites is equated to a sin in the storytelling. And so we're going to move on to the eighth plague. Any questions about seven before we jump on? I think eight is really the most interesting of all of them. All right, let's jump ahead. We're at chapter 10, and we're just going to start at verse 3. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They shall devour the last remnants left you after the hail, and they shall devour every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your officials and of all the Egyptians, something that neither your parents nor your grandparents have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he returned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long shall this fellow be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, worship the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, because we have the Lord's festival to celebrate. And Pharaoh said to him, The Lord indeed will be with you, if ever I let your little ones go with you. Plainly, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, never. Your men may go and worship the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. We'll pause there. First, the plagues are beginning to shift the people in Pharaoh's court. Can you imagine these people speaking to Pharaoh this way? I mean, all of a sudden, Moses is back saying, all right. You said you were going to let us go, and you didn't, so now you're going to get locusts all over you. And Pharaoh's official said to him, How long shall this fellow be a snare to us? Let them go so they may worship the God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh's people are beginning to turn on him because they are exhausted by these plagues. It even noted here that the locusts were going to destroy what the hail and the fire didn't destroy. And so if you thought you could maybe squeak it out with all the stuff that the hail did not destroy, think again. Because when the locusts come, it's all gone. As I said, food production is absolutely critical. Here we see that the locusts are going to destroy everything else so 
The courtiers, the advisors to Pharaoh say, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? That is not a theological statement. That's an economic statement. They realize that Egypt is on the brink and that even without the locusts, Egypt is really teetering on the brink of losing control of everything. And if they were to bring something like the locusts here to finish off this stuff, Egypt would be ruined in the economic sense. And so Pharaoh says something clever. All right, I'm going to let you go, but I'm only going to let the men go, which might be an odd thing. On the one hand, it kind of makes sense. Who represents worship of a family in ancient Judaism? It's the men. The men are the ones that would go to the temple. The men are the ones that would make sacrifices of the animals. The men are the ones that would, on behalf of their families, even their entire tribes, go to worship God to curry favor from God for their entire household. Here, I do not think we are seeing some kind of odd insight from Pharaoh about the way the Israelites function. Instead, we're seeing a little crack, a reveal, that Judaism itself had already begun to practice a male-centric way of worship. But here, that kind of idea is characterized as Pharaoh's cleverness. Pharaoh seems to realize if everybody goes off for the festival, they're gone, and they're never going to come back. But if we hold on to the women and children, then they have to come back because otherwise, what good is their leaving? They would not have the capacity to restart somewhere else outside of Egypt. And so, of course, that's not going to work. And so, as Moses comes back, the plague begins. Let's jump to verse 12 and we'll finish out this plague. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt so that the locusts may come upon it and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When morning came, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came upon all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever shall be again. They covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was black, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Nothing green was left, no tree, no plant in the field, in all of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Do forgive my sin just this once, and pray to the Lord your God that at the least he remove this deadly thing from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord changed the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Once again, we see here, we'll pause. Once again, we see here in verses 16 and 17, Pharaoh say, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Do forgive my sin just this once and pray to the Lord your God that at least he remove the deadly thing from me. So Pharaoh confesses his sin once more and he asks forgiveness from Moses. 
This is again a continued evolution of Pharaoh. What is interesting here is if we look to the Hebrew words, not the English translation, the Hebrew word for forgiveness and lifted is the same word. And so when we see that Pharaoh asks to be forgiven and God changes the wind and lifts the locusts away, it's actually the same Hebrew word, the sa and the isa, so that there is a connection between forgiveness and the carrying away of the thing that has been done wrong. This is very interesting. In Judaism, forgiveness is about bearing the wrong of the other person. That is slightly different than how we understand forgiveness. A Christian context of forgiveness is much more about wiping away the wrong than somehow transferring the wrong. When we talk about being forgiven, we are mostly talking about God forgiving us. Occasionally, when something really bad happens, we actually do go to one another in order to seek forgiveness. How often does that actually happen? Not, not often. But when we go to one another to receive forgiveness, the implication for most people is if I ask for your forgiveness, you will essentially wipe the slate clean, right? Okay. And we even say things like you forgive and forget. Maybe we say we will forgive, but we will not forget, right? Either way, forgiveness for Christians is essentially clearing the slate. Not so with Judaism. In Judaism, forgiveness is almost always meant to be between people. And when one seeks forgiveness from the other, granting forgiveness means a sharing of the burden of the sin itself. It is extremely relational. It is extremely communal. The community actually bears the sin, bears the mistake of the person who made it, so that the community is actually involved in the healing of the sin. We see that in a, well, I was gonna say we see that in a, in a few Christian groups along throughout history, except typically Christians make that more like a scarlet letter moment um, than they do a communal healing moment, but they do their best. Um, I think that for the Jews, this sense of bearing one, carrying one's burden of sin as a means of forgiveness is the way in which the early followers of Jesus understood what he did. So, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, hold on. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. 
this idea that we in the business call atonement theology comes directly from the way in which Jewish forgiveness functioned. And we see that identity of Jewish forgiveness articulated right here in Exodus when Pharaoh's desire to be forgiven literally means God carries away what Pharaoh's sin actually was, that God takes that sin upon himself in order to actually reach forgiveness. Okay, that's a large idea that is maybe new for many. I saw one. Trisha. Yeah. My question was, how would that practically play out in a Jewish community? You need an example of a good city where So the question is, can I give an example of the way in which a sin would be born by the one who is who receives the offense? I would say the most, perhaps the most extreme example of this would be somebody killed your child. And you, as the person who has received the most hurt from that sin in order to forgive the killer would actually, in a sense, take on the responsibility that brought that person to have actually murdered in the first place. And so we are, you know, is that heavy enough for you? Um, <laughs> This is hard for us to understand for one very particular reason. We do not live and die in a single community anymore. So we have to, we can, it's difficult for us in our context to even begin to understand the culpability that I'm discussing right now. But if you put yourself back into the ancient world where you are born and you live and you die in one place, and when you were born, live, and die in one place with, say, a couple hundred other people, not only do you know everybody, but if anybody does something very wrong, it makes real sense that part of what led that person to do wrong is actually the way in which the community impacted their life. And so we, perhaps through negligence, or lack of love, or you name it, actually contributed to a system in which a person found themselves in the place where they would do something so wrong. And so there is this shared sense of culpability, along with a general sense that to actually reach forgiveness, what has been broken has to be repaired. It is very different than much of the way that Christians understand forgiveness, which is simply, I did something wrong over there, and so I'm going to go to God, and God's going to forgive me. That doesn't actually repair the wrong. Is that potentially a truth? Sure. But if, if somebody kills our... If somebody kills your child and then they go and have a prayer, does that do anything for you? 
Uh, not much. I mean, maybe in like the very smallest place in your heart, you're like, at least they're praying. Maybe that's better than nothing. But really, you have been broken and they have been broken. And that brokenness meets in the moment of forgiveness and healing happens together or healing doesn't really happen at all, which is why we see one of the most profound you know, 20th century examples of this is the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa, where you had people who forgave another for killing their family. And what's most powerful about that to me is that for someone to forgive a wrong done, it is not even necessary for the person who did the wrong to actually want the forgiveness. It is necessary for there to be a relationship. And so people were sat down right across from each other and the person wronged spoke forgiveness to the person who did the wronging. Often, the person who did the wrong, who sinned, didn't want forgiveness until they heard the words of forgiveness spoken to them. It is incredible the way that human humanity functions that way. Oftentimes, once someone was forgiven, they wanted to be forgiven. It's very interesting. And I see that dynamic at play here. Any other thoughts or questions about that? I didn't even get to nine. I haven't gotten to nine yet. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, we, we mentioned that last week where there are essentially three different ways in which Pharaoh's heart is hardened in the arc of this story. And one of the things I find most problematic about the plague narrative is God's direct involvement in hardening Pharaoh's heart that then precipitates God's need to come and really convince Pharaoh to change. It is God's essentially creating a problem that only God can solve, and the solution that God uses is typically tragic. And I do think that it's problematic in the way that the story is told. And so, just because I'm out of time, here's the summary. There was darkness on the earth for a few days. There's plague nine. And so there actually isn't a lot that goes into plague number nine. Um, it's not quite as interesting as seven and eight, but plague nine ends with an angry standoff between Moses and Pharaoh. And so I'll just simply read the very end of chapter 10, verses 27 through nine, which says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was unwilling to let the Israelites go. So then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care that you do not see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, just as you say, I will never see your face again. So that happens right after plague nine. And next week, we're going to get into the setup for plague 10, which is the one that ultimately gets them gone. So thank you all very much. I'll see you next week.
Bye.